1: welcome back to the barbell medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine i'm your host dr jordan feigenbaum this is episode number 93 today we're going to talk about that thing you do at home all by yourself in your bed every night sleep Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this episode is all about sleeping, sleep hygiene, sleep medicine, insomnia. We go through the whole thing. We have a very special guest and I'll let him introduce himself right now.
2: So I'm Dr. Nate Gordon. I'm a family and sleep medicine physician currently practicing in Colorado Springs, Colorado.
1: Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. This is the sleepiest podcast we've ever done. I I don't actually have any any other good puns. I really tried. And again, like I just don't have the creativity is not not with me this morning, maybe because I didn't get so much sleep last night, which we're going to talk about.
3: I feel like before we uh, I feel like before we go further, we have to add a little bit to to his credentials. One of his most important credentials is that he was actually one of our classmates in medical school. So, that adds that adds a little bit more credibility.
2: I yeah, I can tell you a little <laughs> bit about that. So, <laughs> It, it's It's relevant, it's relevant.
1: Also also Nate might actually be the strongest sleep doctor in in the world or at one point <laughs> was the strongest at
2: one point Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah the, the, pendul- the pendulum the pendulum is swung in the other way unfortunately but yeah that uh, at one point was a you know something that I could potentially report. Yeah, so we all went to medical school together, Eastern Virginia Medical School and uh, I grew up in that area like not too far away. About 45 minutes away from where Austin grew up and then um, uh, after that did my residency in DC and then followed that up with a uh, one-year fellowship in sleep medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. So that's kind of a little bit more about my background.
1: But give the listeners what they want to hear. What was your best deadlift? (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh god unfortunately you always knew that my we always knew that my squat was better than my deadlift so i think my best deadlift clocked out at like 450 and my best squat clocked out at like 410 so yeah yeah that was at 195 after an aggressive weight gain <laughs> of uh, 175 pounds to 200 pounds in what like three months
1: <laughs> yeah Yeah. The garage, that was a special, that was a special time in our lives. (laughs) uh. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, we're, we're psyched to have Nate here. We get a lot of questions on sleep uh, both just generally on Instagram or YouTube or especially at our seminars and um, neither Austin or myself has any real, you know, formal training in this. I mean, we, we, we learn stuff in medical school and residency and, and you know, We, we pick things up, but not as far as like a formal fellowship or, or any sort of like credentialed, um, um, education. We, we don't, we don't have that. So it was nice to bring an expert on to kind of get into the nitty gritty of sleep. Now, before we get into this, Austin, how many patients do you see in the hospital that have some sort of sleep complaint? Like what percentage would you say? You
3: mean, well, so I guess I could take this a few ways. One is that during their acute hospitalization for whatever medical uh, illness brought them in, just about everybody gets poor sleep in the hospital because of the nature of the hospital. But independent of that, a huge proportion of the patients that I'm seeing do also have some other kind of of breathing disorder uh, in the context of their sleep. So often obstructive sleep apnea, sometimes obesity plays into this, sometimes having heart failure, other medical conditions can all play into this. So super common in the inpatient setting. And then as far as like out, more outpatient primary care consult work that I do with people, you know, fatigue and poor sleep and low energy and stuff like that are super common complaints as well. So I do a, a quite a lot of evaluation of, uh, of things from that standpoint, doing home, home sleep testing and stuff like that, that we'll get
1: into in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so in, in medical school, I was like, that was the running sort of, uh, of joke that, you know, if, if you want to, if you don't want to sleep well, you just come to the hospital and you, if it's a patient, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll never get any sleep. Uh, one of the residency slots that I interviewed for the, in a place outside of uh, Los Angeles, they were like, yeah, right before you start your residency, you get admitted to the hospital for a weekend and you just get to be a patient and you get woke you know woken up at oh, wow. 4 a.m for your a.m labs no and everything way. and I, yeah yeah all this stuff and like i was like wait do you guys really draw blooded and stuff and they're like yeah so you get the you know the full experience and i was like i'm not oh, i'm God. not gonna rank I you w- guys i would not consent to <laughs> <for> that <laughs> yes 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 not only because i don't know if i wanted to just give you guys a blood sample like prior to enrolling but you know that invasion of privacy but also like i'm about to be underslept for the next three years so like just yeah <laughs> let let me have my last weekend at peace um okay cool so let's let's start off with sort of a broad kind of background nate if you had to describe to a patient like why we sleep what would you tell them
2: yeah that's a good question and um it's it's not quite easy to answer um the jury's still working on that Um, but we think that there are multiple sort of functions um Back in the day, and sleep medicine is relatively young, it's only about 50 years old in terms of a like identified specialty. And has um, only been like recognized by the AC, ACGME as like a fellowship trained specialty as of like 2003. So it's still super new. Um, but effectively I tell people um, sleep is not a passive thing, it's a an active thing and you're missing out on a lot of um specific uh brain recuperation type functions um memory consolidation is a big thing um energy conservation is kind of an obvious thing right like you're kind of shutting down or booting down the computer if you want to i know we don't like to compare ourselves to machines too much here but uh generally speaking um you're sort of conserving that energy during that you know those that period of time and then um recently probably in the last couple of years they identified that um there's uh, you know I'd say in quotations a cleaning sort of mechanism that occurs um, via the glymphatics that are present in your brain system so basically you know you're you're clearing away toxins and or uh, you know uh, negative metabolic substances um, that may or may not contribute to bad things down the road and that's sort of the goal I guess of sleep is to to help you recuperate in that sort of manner
1: yeah the way I always understand I kind of conceptualize this was that while you're sleeping, there's a myriad of different hormonal processes that are going on, different sort of maintenance processes that are going on involving like, uh, you know, like you wrote down memory consolidation and like brain cleaning, which you know at a a cellular level is effectively like this pruning and and like refining of different synapses between neurons and and different areas of the brain. It's all these things that are like only can occur at you know the uh, a, a at a substantial rate while you're sleeping right and so i think about like what is the best sort of detox program you could go on uh, it well it would involve a lot of sleep <laughs> the you know the correct, the correct amount of sleep so yeah no no amount of like uh tabasco sauce and lemonade juice cleanse is going to get you detox like a like a solid month of consistent sleep for example um so i think that's a a reasonable sort of description of like the general processes that are occurring while we sleep. Um, There's a, like a structure though, to this. So like a sleep architecture, like how we kind of move through these different phases. And, And I think one of, you know, one of the big questions or ideas that people kind of have is like, well, if I'm not actually asleep, but I'm in bed and I'm quote unquote resting, maybe that's just as good as sleep. And I think going through some of the sleep architecture, this sleep structure will help, (laughs) <laughs> clear that up because it's not the same thing. And as you say, it is sort of a, an active process. So can you take us through this sort of sleep architecture, the structure of, of sleep, how this normally goes uh, uh, while people are, are asleep?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is this is probably one of the more interesting things that um, when I'm seeing a patient in clinic and going through either a sleep study or just some general education, this is probably one of the big things that people want to know about. So I'm happy to talk about that. And the way we we want to kind of uh, break this down so that it's a little bit more digestible without getting too into the weeds is you have two forms of sort of predominant sleep. And um, this is uh, it's as basic as it seems. Um, it's, it's, it's actually based on um, eye movement. So you have what's called non-rapid eye movement sleep uh, or NREM sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. And NREM sleep usually consists of about 75 to 80% of sleep for most people um, throughout the night. And this is all, um, we'll point out based on in-lab sort of sleep study, clinical, uh, not trials, but evaluations of try, to try to establish norms. So, you know, most people who end up getting recruited for these uh, studies are usually young, healthy adults. So a lot of this is based on young, healthy adults. and May differ depending on your population, but you have NREM sleep and REM sleep. So 75 to 80% NREM, 25% REM sleep, and they're all each like stage has its own sort of flavor and sort of uh, uh, characteristics. And determining the different stages isn't so much important for the patient as much as it is sort of for the clinician. But the way we'll break it down is sort of you know in these 90 to 100 sometimes a little bit longer minute periods, you're transitioning from what we think of as lighter stage sleep to um, deeper sleep, um, ultimately culminating with REM sleep. That's not hundred percent of the time, but we'll just go with it as, you know, a potential archetype. So um, non, you know, non REM sleep is comprised of three different stages. It used to be comprised of four different and the American Academy of sleep medicine made it a little bit easier on us. And now it's only three stages and n one sleep is your first stage and that's considered light sleep and we don't spend too much time uh in the night uh in this stage but it's about five percent and it's generally speaking like the easiest stage to wake up from and what's kind of interesting is um if you wake somebody up from a period of time of them being an n1 sleep they may even report to you like that they don't even feel like they're asleep hey doctor i wasn't asleep at all (laughs) i
1: was just resting my eyes right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's like nudging austin when he's you know passed out in the back. I wouldn't, I was just resting my eyes. (gasps) (laughs) Make it, making dad noises. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Right. And, And, and that has some implications, right? Because if a person is spending more time in like N1 sleep, um, throughout the night, they may, you know, you might have a patient who reports, and this is classic. I see this probably in a fair number of patients who come to me, who say, yeah, doc, I don't sleep at all. Like not even a wink. And then, you know, you, you slap on a, like a sleep watch or you have them sleep in the lab and you identify quite a bit of time and sleep, but they're spending more time in this N1 sleep. And it makes sense why they would report why they don't feel like they're not getting a ton. Um, so that's stage one, that's about 5% a night. Stage two is where we spend the bulk of NREM sleep. That's about 40 to 55%. And most will report like feeling that they were asleep if you were to wake them up in an n2 um there's not much to say beyond that other than some like characteristic findings that we'll see in n2 and sometimes we see um some pretty interesting like sleep related um uh behaviors occurring out of n2 or n3 sleep which i'll talk about now so n3 sleep is considered the deepest sort of stage of sleep it's like 10 to 20 percent of uh uh our sleep and people tend to consider this to be sort of slow wave um in terms of your brain waves uh sleep it's typically considered to be the more restorative stage of sleep and honestly it's it's very sensitive to sleep deprivation so like your body knows that it wants more n3 Um, so for example like if i were to sleep deprive jordan and say okay jordan you're going to go to you know uh this many uh baby showers this week and you're going to stay up and take lots of pictures and not get a lot of rest. Um, the likelihood is is that that first night that I gave him, you know, an ability to catch up on that sleep, you might see a higher number or higher percentage of this non uh, non REM stage three sleep, and that's because your body um, wants to wants to maximize it if it can. And what's sort of interesting to point out is that people who don't
1: go ahead. Yep. Oh, sorry. You just get there faster. Is that the idea or like, yeah,
2: exactly. It's, it's kind of like, um, think of it as a, as a, like a bodily or like a necessary sort of drive that you need. It's kind of, it's almost like thirst, right? Like eventually you're gonna, you're gonna determine that you're thirsty and that's going to be sort of your priority. Well, N3 sleep tends to pop in, um a little bit earlier in sleep deprived individuals if they're given uh, appropriate opportunity and it's because there's a lot of restorative quality that goes into it and we're we're speaking kind of vague because the science isn't so really um been hashed out but you know relevant to probably our listeners um n3 sleep is where growth hormones typically secreted so a lot of uh bodybuilders are chasing n3 sleep and there's a lot of commercial Commercial discussion out there as far as how can we maximize and capitalize on N3 sleep, and frankly, um, short of sleep depriving yourself, there there isn't anything that's really been solidly associated with getting more N3 sleep, at least in a safe way.
1: Yeah, so that's that's non-REM sleep in a nutshell. And then and then you so you're passing through these rather linearly, meaning most people will go N1, N2, get into N3, and then and this is all happening in the you know two hours or so, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, something like that. And then people are going to pop then into REM sleep, which probably most people have heard about on some level. um, But, you know, never, they, they don't necessarily really know that much about it. So what, what's happening there?
2: Yeah. So what's interesting about REM sleep, um, is, is that if you were to take snapshots of your brainwave activity during REM sleep and compare that to, um, being awake or N one, it actually would look the most similar. So REM sleep, even though it's, it's coming later, um, in the, uh, sleeping period and tends to be considered, um, a deeper stage of sleep is actually quite an active stage. And it makes sense because if you're dreaming during that period of time, your, your brain, um, the areas in your brain are sort of active. Um, and that's why those, those stages would appear similarly. Um, we, we tend to think that uh, REM sleep is associated with um, some memory consolidation. It's, it's you know, it's, that's not 100%. Um, but then also uh, emo- emotional regulation of memories is, is something that's sort of interestingly that's been studied. Um, and, and people who, uh, people who, who look at this in more detail, um, will tell you that, uh, this is probably, that's probably one of the, the more important, um, functions of REM sleep. Uh, and then just to point out REM sleep is one of those periods of time where, and we'll get into this when we get into sleep apnea, um, where sleep apnea tends to be worse because, um, when you're dreaming in, in sleep, it's advantageous to your body to not, uh, be sort of capable of acting out your dreams. So your muscles tend to be more relaxed and, or sort of paralyzed during this stage. Um, so that's why sleep apnea Um, which we'll talk about, um, tends to be worse in this stage because those muscles tend to be more relaxed, particularly the muscles of the upper airway.
1: So, so you mean all those dreams I have where I'm falling and then I wake (laughs) up in bed, that's when I'm (laughs) in REM sleep and I, I'm actually paralyzed and I can't, can't do anything. Is Is that right?
2: That, that is, that's definitely, that's definitely a possibility. There are a couple other things that could be going on. Sleep paralysis is a common one that, um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have experienced, um. And a lot of people freak out about and frankly that's that's sort of a it's a it's like a mix between the wake stage and the rem stage and what that's usually representative of is um, the person is sleep deprived uh, because like n3 sleep rem is also sensitive to sleep deprivation so usually maybe the second night after catching up on a long period of sleep deprivation you might see a a rebound of rem sleep Um, so you see that often sort of in sleep-deprived individuals,
3: I had a question here, uh, Nate. You you, you mentioned that you mentioned the roles of this with respect to emotional regulation, and I think most people can probably identify if they're sleep uh, restricted in some way, maybe getting a little more irritable. How far does this go? Does it go all the way towards like? you know, uh, clinically diagnosed like depression and things like that. Cause we know that there are sleep disturbances in that context. And are they like bi-directional cause depressed people tend to not have the best sleep and is it vice versa? What's your, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Um, so there was, it, it the audio is cutting in and out a little bit, but what I'll say it's, I think what I, I think what you're getting at is you're asking how much does REM sleep sort of play into sort of, um, emotional regulation, like when someone's up and awake and sort of during their day. And, and so the general sort of statement should be that sleep and um, sort of mental well-being or, and or mental health is, like you said, a bi-directional relationship. So it makes sense that if you're, if you're not doing well in terms of your mood, um, your sleep may certainly suffer or vice versa if, you're, if your sleep is suffering for whatever reason. Um, your mood definitely can tank as a result of that. Um, in terms of emotional regulation from from a REM sleep perspective, that more so has to do with um, sort of like the quality, I guess, uh, uh, the emotional state of those dreams and or those memories mm-hmm. that are, you know, being processed uh, and or sort of cleaned during that period of time. Um, it's, it's probably deeper sort of clinical science stuff that I, I need to brush up on a little bit more. But um, it, I don't think it plays as direct a role as we're sort of talking about in terms of, uh, you know, day to day sort of mental well being.
3: Yeah. I just always encounter it as a particularly challenging kind of clinical problem where somebody might have depression and they have sleep disturbances, but you know, it's like, where do you start attacking the problem? Cause, uh, cause of this, you know, it kind of feeds both ways to some extent and that makes it particularly challenging.
2: Yeah, that's, that's probably one of the most challenging, um, aspects, I'd say, of sleep medicine, like sleep medicine very much so can be cut and dry. Um, you know, do you have sleep apnea or not? Let me help you treat it if it's severe and affecting your daily function. It's the uh, the patient who is experiencing um, difficulty from a mental like health well-being perspective, um, and, and you're right, like, how do you navigate that? So I usually tell people like to not put things on the back burner, like yeah. continue evaluating and assessing this with your primary care doctor, as well as your behavioral health team. Um, because, uh, it's only going to be an uphill battle if you continue to have uh, mood and or mental health uh,
3: and pain issues. and and pain too. Similar situation with pain. You know, we know that that uh, sleep restriction limitation tends to exacerbate kind of persistent pain states, and pain itself obviously can disturb sleep. So similar, similarly difficult situation.
1: Yeah, there, and we'll definitely talk about that. When we talk about insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea as far as like some bidirectionality between different medical conditions and and these things. So uh, the next sort of thing that I think. People probably are curious about and and really needs to be discussed before we uh while we when we're talking about sleep is why do we even sleep like all right we've talked about what it is what's going on the general sort of architecture here but like what what pushes us to sleep i mean what you know just think how productive I could be if I just stayed up the whole time. Like you know, there'd be the seven eight hours where like nobody else is awake, and I'm just hammering out emails or like you know, screwing around in Adobe Premiere Pro editing videos. I, why can't I just do that? What's what's going on?
2: Yeah, so i i, I i'd make the argument that a lot of um, a lot of people would would say that they they are not sensitive to sleep deprivation and that they're capable of functioning during the day. But sort of by and large, the majority of the, the data out there suggested that um, to, to a certain degree and, and sort of the, the number of hours of sleep are still sort of depending on which group you go to, that's still sort of in question. Um, but certainly you can make the argument based on the data that uh, if you stay up long enough, um, you're gonna have enough of a sleep pressure building that it's going to affect your daily function um and in general most people sort of fall within you know our you know what what we would expect to be the standard um deviation of of need so somewhere between you know six seven uh and six seven hours to about eight or nine hours is sort of the average as to what most individuals need and maybe i think the the last time i looked it up the last uh percentage was about 10% of the population may require or may do fine with just less. I think it's an individual kind of thing. You have to really sort of look at it and, and determine, and this is what I talk to a lot of my patients about is if you're coming to me because you're experiencing daytime symptoms and we identify that you're not getting enough sleep, then that's something that we need to concentrate on. On the other hand, if we identify something else, your primary care doctor identifies something that they're worried about, but you yourself don't feel like you're, um, Really experiencing a deficit during the day, then we sort of we should use uh, validated screening tools to verify that you're not experiencing uh, any issues, and or you know with a thorough sort of history, figuring out that you're not actually you know experiencing symptoms like falling asleep behind the wheel at the at the red lights or you know stuff like that. So. I mean the why we need it, I, I think the reason why it, it ends up creeping into our lives particularly during the day is just because we, we develop this sleep pressure. Um, and, and the way that I t- classically will explain this to patients is there are two sort of models that are uh, that we're experiencing um, our sleep through. and the first is that process aster pressure that we're discussing and, and that's basically that sort of innate drive to get sleep and whether that's due to needing to get more uh, that restorative deep quality sleep or that memory consolidation, it doesn't really matter. Like it's a, it's a form of pressure that builds up over time. And I think all of us uh, at least here can, can relate to that. You know, if you've been up for a prolonged period of time for a call shift um, towards the end of that shift, you're definitely starting to slow down and, and become groggy. And, and that's just because you've got over time you've got sleepy chemicals uh particularly what we think to be uh comprised of adenosine um building up in your brain the longer that you're awake Um, and that's sort of this think of it as like a gas tank that's filling uh, and by the time that you are given the opportunity to sleep you're utilizing that gas uh, to allow the sleep process to occur
1: got it yeah, so there's basically this gradually mounting sort of pressure to go to bed. Some of that I prefer the term to- I prefer the term sleep drive, sleep drive.
2: Yeah. For
1: sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just keep it keeps building throughout whatever your normal waking hours are, uh, and that you know tends to make people uh, engage in regular, cyclical sort of sleep habits based on their day to day life, which can change though with like shift work or you know major stressors and that can throw this whole thing into out of whack um but there's a secondary process that i guess has they're not necessarily mutually exclusive but i guess i've i've heard another way to describe this more than the sleep pressure is just based on the circadian rhythm um process c as, as you kind of write here what's your sort of take on that like do these things go together are they mutually exclusive um how do you how do you kind of square that circle
2: Yeah. So, so what's interesting, um, I don't, I don't tend to think of them as, um, I mean, they're, they are exclusive processes in that they're separate, but they, the way that they overlap is sort of how sleep is enabled. So, um, you know, we talked about sleep pressure that builds up over time, ways that you can sort of mitigate that, right. Obviously sleeping. So that, that brings down some of that sleep pressure. so things like napping or sleeping longer for longer periods of the day may reduce someone's overall sleep drive. Caffeine um, it is a, is a has an effect on adenosine that reduces it uh, its effect. Um, but process C or the circadian rhythm that you bring up. so a lot of people like to talk about this. it's, it's really important to sort of understand that this is um, this is sort of like an internal biological clock that uh, is running on its own. Um, and it is susceptible to, uh, perturbations from the environment, particularly it's, it's most susceptible to, um, to light. That's really a big deal. And that's, that's kind of where a lot of this research in circadian rhythm, um, circadian rhythms is going, which is, which is really cool because it helps the clinician sort of use things that don't hurt people, i.e. light, um, to sort of get them. Back on track. So, what the circadian rhythm is, is it's better to think of it rather as a process for sleep, uh, uh, but rather more so an alerting signal. Um, So, over the course of the day, let's say from the period in which you wake up to um, uh, early morning hours, that circadian alerting signal is sort of gradually increasing. Um, You take a little bit of a dip probably around the middle of the day. Sometimes people like to blame their turkey sandwich on that siesta sort of feeling, but turns out that it's actually process C, uh, their circadian rhythm taking a little bit of dip and that's physiologic. Uh, and then that over over the course of the day will continue to sort of increase. And that's why we often feel a little bit more alert in the afternoons. And then even um, they've plotted it out um, because the circadian sort of rhythm sort of follows uh, uh, temperature, core body temperature. and What's interesting is just before we go to bed at night um our our alerting signal is pretty high and that's theorized to be due to you know back in the day when we were living in caves and outdoors we had to make sure that our sleeping environment was safe um so that's a sort of an interesting theory um how uh and then eventually what happens is once once you've sort of you know s- situated your your environment um that that circadian rhythm takes a dip melatonin starts to secrete around that time um, and then at its lowest the circadian rhythm um, will sort of intersect with your sleep pressure being at its highest and those two things together are kind of what help people go to sleep um, and then even throughout the night obviously still like this is a 24 plus hour process so um, you can then sort of track uh, your circadian rhythm in in the form of it sort of being low throughout the night Uh, melatonin secretion being at its highest. And again, that sort of follows core body temperature. So what's kind of interesting is that your core body temperature is coldest or lowest in the middle of the night, but then starts waking or starts uh, going up one to three hours before you wake up. Um, So then allowing that circadian alerting signal to sort of, you know, begin to build. And that's why most of us, frankly, uh, if we follow any sort of regular sleep schedule, we'll wake up before our alarm goes off and that's because you're alerting your circadian alerting signals waking you up
1: that's uh, people need to go hit that back button like for 15 seconds 15 seconds 15 seconds go back (laughs) listen to that so you understand the sleep process that is as good as it's going to get without taking a formal getting some formal education on this stuff so go back re-listen to that and then when you're ready you can continue the rest of the podcast. <laughs> that, was ex- <laughs> that was excellent. That was excellent. Um, okay. So we've talked about uh, what is sleep, the structure of it, processes that contribute to like this need or drive, as Austin like says, drive to sleep. Uh, the nitty gritty, the big question is, well, how much do I need? I, You know, you look at the, yeah. the National Sleep Foundation, they have this like cute chart you know, it goes from like newborn all the way to older adult. And effectively, once you get into this uh, like 18 years old and, and over, they're talking about seven to eight, seven to nine hours of sleep on average for most individuals with some wiggle room on, on either end, meaning some people need maybe a little less and some people need a little more. Um, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, like if someone's not having problems in their day-to-day function, they're not having, you know, excessive daytime sleepiness or compromised performance at their you know, the job or in relationships or whatever, this again, sounds very like DSM five, like psychiatry kind of diagnosis, (laughs) then maybe they're fine. But do you find that people don't have a lot of insight into that? Meaning that people who are like regularly sleep deprived and performing under where they should be, they just don't know like, Hey, yeah, you're actually, you're actually underperforming. They just think this is life. This is what it's supposed to be like. You find that pretty frequently.
2: Yeah, I do, it, and that's that's probably even more commonly seen in um, the patients that we identify with sleep disordered breathing. So, like, it's very interesting. I on a I should I wish I had kept track of the number of times I've had patients come back and tell me like, man, like, I have no idea for the last twenty uh, some years or thirty some years of my life how I even was sleeping without you know this breathing machine or sleeping with without uh treating my condition and you sometimes get that in patients who um have insomnia too you know they they start to sort of recognize how how much of a difference um they're getting in terms of their daytime function when you start to improve their sleep um it's it's like night and day for some uh sleep apnea patients for ins- for some insomnia patients they tend to you know, over time become conditioned to sort of just operating at that level of sleep deprivation. Um, and those tend to be a little bit more challenging cases. Uh, but, uh, you're absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like some people have no idea until you sort of remove the blinders from them and then, um, it, it can definitely make a positive impact. Um, you just have to really, uh, work with your patients uh, on an individual basis. Uh, I, I wish that there were sort of broad like brushes that we could sort of paint this picture for most people out there, but it tends to be something that that t- needs to be a little bit more individualized. And you, you know, you mentioned the National Sleep Foundation. I think I think the National Sleep Foundation is great. Um, they have a really good website. I think we should link that for our uh, listeners uh, because they they go into details as, as to a lot of different sleeping um, conditions and or um, reasons why sleep is important. But I, I absolutely agree with you. It's very, it's hard to say that um, everybody needs to adhere to the sort of guidance and or recommendations that are pointed out. Um, I think it's just too much of an individual call. Um, and uh, I don't know that I necessarily 100% agree right now.
1: Sure. So how would you, if somebody asked you, Dr. Gordon, how much sleep do I need per night? How do you respond to that?
2: yeah that's a good question i usually i usually will come back at them with a, I i mean it not not to be like quick or too cute to the point but basically it, it just depends on on you um and that's it, it that's usually where we kind of go back to the beginning and we kind of ask the individual like um what brings you to my office today like what things are we trying to accomplish uh and what things can we imp- how could we improve your life and notice how i didn't like I'm not specifying how can I improve your sleep. I'm trying to figure out what's going on in your life that you think sleep may or may not have a role in. So uh, I I tell everybody there's no strict like rule. Uh, There are norms. Most people tend to fall within those norms, but um, it's just highly individual.
1: Gotcha. So there's not one weird trick for telling people how much sleep they need. And, and it
3: does it does sound like, you know, that the amount that not only is there not one amount for each person, but even within the individual, this is likely to vary um, maybe over over time, depending on the time scale you're looking at. And I'm curious, you know, if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of the changes that tend to happen as people get older, because obviously we work with a lot of the older population and we hear a lot about kind of the, the, their experiences with respect to sleep and training and life and things like that in general. So what what's the current thinking in the sleep medicine world as far as kind of what, what uh, changes are happening across the lifespan, uh, on this front with, with respect to sleep quantity and quality?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. This is something that's been sort of revisited. Um, it was, it was initially sort of studied, um, and the thought process was that older patients in general, um, uh and and okay so let's define that because that's kind of hard to define um in sleep medicine in general older patients in quotations is somewhere between 55 and 65 years old so you know those of those of our listeners who are falling within that range don't take that as like a jab or anything that's just you know sort of how the sleep medicine literature sort of categorize people but uh basically uh, folks falling, you know, somewhere right of 55 to 65 years old are considered older adults. And sort of traditionally what has been thought of is that um, those, those folks experience more um, lighter stages of sleep, so N1, N2, and tend to experience um, less of that N3 sleep. Um, and that's thought to be due to, like, Uh, a multitude of things. So we, we, you know, you guys reference a lot the the biopsychosocial model and a lot of that may play a role here. So, you know, these individuals have a higher incidence of medical and or, uh, you know, psychiatric conditions. Um, They tend to, you know, they experience a lot of role uh, transitions, meaning that these folks are, you know, as opposed to a a 16 year old who is, is attending school and sort of playing sports and that's sort of their responsibility. Um, older individuals have a lot more sort of stuff going on in terms of their, their individual roles within their, you know, their personal lives their families and or society. So, um, it's thought that those, those things contribute to them experiencing less N3 sleep, um, in sort of more recent data, uh, I'd have to sort of look it up again, but I've, I've also sort of seen that that's coming into question now. Maybe they don't necessarily experience um, that much less N3 sleep, or maybe it's not a significant amount, but I've definitely had my patients sort of report to me that um, they, they feel like over time and over the years, they've experienced less quality uh, or less high quality sleep. If, uh, if that, you know, pertains to N3 sleep, we don't know. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's like I said, it, it tends to be more of an individual thing. Um, it's also interesting. There's some data out there that would suggest that, you know, these older individuals who may be experiencing less N3 sleep are less, um, susceptible to feeling, uh, the effects, I guess, of having that reduced, co- uh, high quality or N3 sleep. So it's, it's kind of all over the board.
3: So it may be, it may be, that would suggest that it may be physiologic, i.e. not a real significant problem if they are less susceptible to that change. Right. Kind of like we see changes in certain hormone levels across the lifespan, be it thyroid or testosterone or something. And it's not necessarily clearly associated with, with, uh, symptoms or, or reduced, uh, you know, increased risk of more of uh, disease or death. So it may just be a physiologic thing. So it's a little, a little tricky.
2: Yeah, exactly. For sure.
1: Makes some sense. But I'm sure in fifteen to twenty years we'll be like, oh man, we're so dumb. <laughs> yeah. Which which is fine. You just gotta update your priors. The worst thing you can do yeah. is just keep saying the same thing over and over again despite <laughs> overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Okay, moving on. So we talked about why we sleep, structure of sleep, what makes us go to sleep, and then like how much we may or may not need, depending on the ind- being an individual and in different contexts, etc. Let's Start talking about some sort of practical/slash clinical type uh, applications here. So first off, somebody says, "Dr. Gordon, all right, you're the sleep guru. What do I? What should I start doing at home right now to make sure that I'm setting myself up for success as far as getting the best quality sleep that I can?" I think you would start with sleep hygiene, which we talk. We say that phrase all the time, and I think. Now, looking back, I wish that every time I said that phrase, I would actually define it and say (laughs) exactly what, you know, is considered to, to relate to sleep hygiene. Cause I think people are just like, okay, I know what dental hygiene is. You just like brush your teeth and floss. Like what is the tooth brushing and the flossing for sleep? What, what falls in this category?
2: Yeah, that's a, you bring up a really good point. Cause what's interesting about sleep hygiene is in general, it's classically, um, When you look at sort of the clinical trials that assess for treatments for things like insomnia, sleep hygiene is usually actually the control. Um, But then when you look in the details of those studies, sleep hygiene isn't always either well-defined or if it is, it's sort of not uh, congruent uh, you know, exclusively across the board. So I'll tell you what I think my version of sleep hygiene is and sort of what I think, what I would consider sort of to be basic things that... Um, all individuals should, should at least to some degree, keep in mind and, and sort of what I tell my patients, particularly those who I'm treating for insomnia, um, is that sleep hygiene is one of those things that, um, it's, it's the, the most basic level of, uh, thing behaviors that may influence your sleep. So if you're not doing these things, you're sort of setting yourself up to, for an uphill battle potentially. So sort of common things, um. That we talk about are uh, environmental factors that can influence your sleep, and that's sort of the primary sort of basis of sleep hygiene. So things like uh, making sure you have a comfortable mattress to sleep on, and that you have a safe environment to sleep in, and that you're not, um, you know, keeping the bright beaming lights in your, you know, in your house on um, when you're trying to go to sleep at night. Um, temperature is an interesting one that a lot of people. Uh, Will overlook. Uh, so, as I sort of mentioned, you know, based on your circadian rhythm, which follows a core body temperature, you can negatively influence your ability to go to sleep if you're trying to go to sleep with your thermostat set to 85 degrees. Um, you know, that's all rel- that's relative to the individual, right? If you're someone who runs cold, I guess, then maybe having it a little bit higher. But in general, we would have. App- We would uh, ask most individuals to set their thermostat somewhere between 67 and 70 degrees uh, at a max. Um, Improper sort of uh, activities uh, around sleep, some of this kind of makes sense. Um, So, if you were to use caffeine uh, just before going to bed, it would make sense that you might have some difficulty with going to sleep uh, shortly after. Nicotine, like caffeine, is also a stimulating substance. So, for those of uh, our listeners or those patients who are tobacco users, definitely it's uh, nicotine is something that can negatively influence uh, your sleep because it's a stimulating type of, uh, uh, you know, drug, if you will. You know, I, I get a lot of, I ask the question, when is your last cigarette of the night? And they usually tell me just before I go to sleep. And that's counterintuitive because it's a stimulating, it has a stimulating effect. So you know, generally speaking, sort of, again, we're thinking baseline recommendations, think low-hanging fruit that we can try to adjust. I would advise that being removed from around the bedtime. And then and then alcohol. So alcohol is a common, sort of commonly used uh, uh, sleep aid. It helps reduce um, the time it takes for you to go to sleep. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But the issue with alcohol is, is it, number one, it sort of, it negatively impacts your sleep um, Well, to say that it's negative is hard to to make that comment, but it it impacts your sleep architecture by basically suppressing all of your REM sleep. So you don't you people who drink a lot or have, uh, you know, a binge type night might experience um, a longer, crazy Uh, more elaborate dream that they end up waking up from. And that's because they're sort of pushing all of that REM sleep towards the the last portion of their sleeping period. Um, And then as alcohol starts to metabolize, people tend to wake up. So that's why alcohol is not um, a great sleep aid and is included in that sleep hygiene sort of discussion. Uh, And then sort of other common things that we'll talk about, um, people who exercise just before sleep or just before trying to go to sleep. Um, If it's a particularly hard workout, like if you're doing an RPE 10 type workout, you're, you're probably not going to sleep that well. You know, if you do it right before you hop into bed. Um, So in general, I think the convention is somewhere on the realm of like three, four hours before bedtime. I think that you can play around with that depending on the intensity of the workout. And, you know, this, this listens, listens, group of listeners, I'm sure would appreciate that. Um, and then eating. So food is actually kind of like light. It's considered a, what's called a zeitgeber or a, uh, an influencer of the, uh, the circadian rhythm. So ideally, you're, you're having an earlier dinner um, and giving yourself a couple of hours before you try to go to sleep. And that's kind of the gist of sleep hygiene. I mean, those are baseline things that I would recommend for all individuals to consider looking at.
1: And what's the evidence on sleep hygiene overall, if you had to wrap it up?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, so sleep hygiene for patients who have, uh, who have, who meet the criteria for chronic insomnia or insomnia, like even acutely is it's not, it's not good enough. Generally speaking, um, you have to do a little bit more than sleep hygiene. So, for those listeners out there who either get a handout on sleep hygiene, or for those who are practicing um, in clinic um, and you're giving your patients sort of a, you know, either sleep hygiene handout or a talk, um, that may not be enough. Uh, and the the evidence, uh, you know, at the moment is a is a weak against um, s- strictly using sleep hygiene as a as the only form of intervention.
1: Interesting. Yeah, because most people say, yeah, oh, just do this, and you'll be you'll be fine, you know, as far as people not actually practicing sleep medicine. So that uh, should be noted. And if I can add,
2: I'll add one more thing to that. So it's potentially harmful too. this is something that I uh, it makes sense when you think about it. Now, Um, if you give somebody like, let's say you have a discussion about sleep hygiene with somebody, and they have chronic insomnia, and they go home, they do these things, and then they continue to have insomnia. Well, we're, we're potentially harming those patients, because what's happening is, is effectively you're you're giving them information to modify their behaviors but the problem is is that if the patient does these things it doesn't get better well then what's the likelihood of them taking on more recommendations to change their behavior um so you know we we haven't touched on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which is evidence uh supported and recommended for first-line treatment of insomnia but you could potentially harm a patient who has insomnia by saying, "Here's some sleep hygiene, go for it, uh, good luck." And then the patient does it, and then becomes, you know, disgruntled or upset about not getting better, and then you potentially have closed that door to that patient sort of changing their behaviors via cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's potentially harmful.
1: Yeah, effectively, they they are more resistant to doing some of the other things that they also view as either being ineffectual, like just they just don't work because the sleep hygiene thing didn't work, or they think they're already doing enough with the sleep hygiene. So double-edged kind of sword there. Um, Okay. So I think it's important now there are two like major diagnoses that I think like clinical diagnoses that, that uh, we see all the time um, particularly in North America and then just are the people who we interact with on a regular basis. And those are insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. So Let's start off here with insomnia. If you had to define insomnia to a patient, explain it to a patient, what would you say this
0: is?
2: Yeah. So, um, in a nutshell, it's basically, um, difficulty with initiating sleep or maintaining sleep, um, or both, um, for, uh, in, in terms of, uh, chronic insomnia for greater than three months uh in terms of acute insomnia it's the opposite it's for a period of less than three months and that's usually you know three or more nights a week um super common thing that we see particularly i mean obviously in sleep medicine but definitely even when i'm doing primary care i see probably i'd say a third of my patients are complaining of this this uh this condition
1: yeah it's got uh obviously a lot of people in north america i think it's like something like 20 to 30 percent yeah of adults in north america and you, you can have it short term or chronic so short term being like less than three months chronic being usually greater than that um when you diagnose this are you using like questionnaires like the pittsburgh sleep quality index or something like that or are you using a different sort of screening tool or diagnostic tool like how, how are you diagnosing this in the clinic
2: Yeah, so it's usually um, I'm usually talking to the person and just sort of asking about what their sleep is like. I'm usually doing um, an insomnia severity uh, questionnaire. Uh, It's otherwise known as the ISI, Um, but the the Pittsburgh one is also a good one to uh, sort of establish um, how the patient feels, their quality of sleep is, and sometimes that's hard to put into words. So um, those are all like the ISI and the PSQI are both validated um, screening questionnaires that we use frequently uh, when we're when we're talking to patients about insomnia.
1: And then what are you, I guess when you're also diagnosing this, you're trying to make sure it's not something else that's not mm-hmm. actually insomnia. So like an example would be like, you don't have enough opportunity to sleep, for example, like literally you're going to bed at midnight and you got to be up at 430. Like that's not insomnia. You're just, it's a short sleep duration, for example, or sleep insufficiency. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's, that's probably in the, in my patient population that I'm seeing regularly in, in this area. That's, that's probably one of the more common things. The other, the other one um, that a lot of people that will trip up a lot of people is um, circadian um, derangements. So say a patient's circadian rhythm is shifted to the right, meaning they're um, their circadian rhythm is delayed. So they're more likely to have their circadian rhythm drop off later in the evening. Um, that's someone then who is more likely to go to sleep later and therefore wake up later. Uh, but that's not always congruent with, uh, their lifestyle. So then, then it's perceived as well, you know, I'm trying to go to sleep earlier so I can wake up earlier, but I can't. Well, it turns out that maybe it's not so much, Insomnia, as much as it is something called delayed uh, circadian preference, um, so that's you know, the that's that's sort of a, a little bit of a little bit more of a nuanced, uh, not to throw that word out, but <laughs> a little bit more uh, approach that I'd say uh, is specific to a, like a sleep medicine evaluation, uh, because by and large, the majority of people who are complaining of insomnia probably have a degree of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People come to you, they, they're obviously having some daytime, excessive daytime fatigue or compromising their ability to like participate in all the things they want to. And so they're thinking, hey, I might have this sleep problem. And yeah, just given this, the numbers, common things being common, you're probably gonna probably going to have something there. Um, okay. So you've effectively diagnosed somebody as having insomnia. It's not, again, that they just don't have a lack of ability to sleep, meaning just like actual time, or that they have like a sleep phase disorder where they're really a night owl, but they have to wake up super early every morning to go to work or vice versa. They have to like, they work really, really late, but they'd rather go to bed early and then wake up super early. So it's not any of that. It's insomnia, bread and butter. What sort of things are, or how are you treating this, managing this? Is it like a stepwise thing or is it just super individualized based on the person or both I guess?
2: It's, yeah, it's a little, it's definitely a little bit of both. Um, It's helpful to have when you're, when you're talking to someone to have a pretty good sense as to how long it's been going on. So just, just your basic, like history and physical type stuff. So how long it's been going on, was there a trigger? Are there any associated sort of stressors that you can identify that may be contributing Um, what their past medical history is? That's definitely an important thing. So let's say like you've got a patient who has a history of ADHD and they're taking um, their stimulant medication, and they've recently sort of increased their their stimulant use, or they're maybe they're taking it the wrong way, or they're taking it a little too late in the day, like common things like that. You know, looking at their medicine list and seeing is there something on there other than you know obvious things like stimulants um, that could be contributing. Um, beta blockers are a common one that people don't think about um, that can negatively uh, impact sleep and predispose someone to insomnia. Um, certain antidepressants are more stimulating than others and can be contributing. I mean, the laundry list goes on. So it's kind of one of those things that you would want to look at all of those factors. And then once you sort of, again, ruled out any confounders, um, if it's just purely behavioral type insomnia, then, I mean, the first thing that I usually start with is, is education. Um, so let's say, you have the time of day to, to do that, you might then talk about some of those things that we talked about earlier, process C and process S, just so that the person understands why it's important for them to build up enough sleep drive, as Austin would point out, um, to, to, to get sleepy enough to go to sleep at night. Um, we would talk about the circadian rhythm and sort of environmental influences of that um, to help the person understand that perhaps having dimly lit um, a dimly lit house uh, for the last couple hours of their night, maybe a positive uh, thing to do, and then um, then we'll you know typically uh, recommend uh, if the patient is agreeable to it um, something called cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so CBTI, we'll just uh, you know call it that for for the remainder of the podcast is is something that is evidence supported. Um, it's The primary sort of recommendation, if you go to all of the sleep, um, all the organizations that be, that sort of make, uh, these guidelines, CBTI is sort of the go-to and, and frankly, not everybody is trained in CBTI and it's, it's not, it's not to say that it's super hard to learn how to do with patients. It's just, it can be time consuming. It's, uh, something that requires multiple sessions can require up to six to eight weeks of you seeing somebody who's trained in it, uh uh, for periods of, you know, between every two to four weeks, you check in with somebody and you're, what you're basically doing is you're making micro adjustments to, um, something very, uh, personal, the person's nighttime behavior and doing a couple of things that we can specify, um, in a little bit, but that, that's how I would approach it. Now, if you're a primary care doctor or you're seeing your primary care doctor and you're complaining of insomnia, then, you know, once you, like I said, have identified that this is purely insomnia and you want to get help, my recommendation is: is you you talk to somebody about getting in with uh, a provider who can who can perform CBTI. Um, and this is something that I would I would you know consider a worthwhile investment uh, either your time and or your money, um, uh, because you know if you're not sleeping, this is this is what's been shown to be the most effective in terms of long term treatment.
3: I know th- there may not be direct evidence on this, but I know that I've seen uh, several like web-based CBTI services for people because I've had patients who are in areas where they don't have local access to one. Uh, can you speak to that at all? What, anything you know about any of those services? We don't have to name anyone in particular, but.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, so you know, it's it's worth saying, and I, it's probably easier to say say it than it is to achieve it, but CBTI is definitely important. And unfortunately, there just aren't a ton of people who are doing it. Um, but as far as online delivery, so there are some there are some studies out there that have demonstrated that the online uh, delivery form of CBTI is effective. And then there are other, so like, for example, we you all of us have sort of been talking about the recent uh, VA DOD guidelines that were just released on the management of chronic insomnia and uh, sleep apnea. And they touch on this. And what they sort of demonstrated when they reviewed the literature is that there isn't a There isn't enough evidence to uh, strictly say like, yes, we 100% would support replacing face-to-face CBT with um, telehealth delivery CBTI. But there are some decent studies out there that would support it. And frankly, if I had a patient who didn't have access to a provider that could give them CBTI, that would be sort of my next in line recommendation. Uh,
1: To be clear, you're saying CBT, not to be confused with CBD, which has no role yeah. in <laughs> insomnia, to be clear, to yeah, be dude. clear.
2: That, that's a whole nother, that's a whole another conversation. Don't open that bag of words. Well, and I have
1: to say this because, um, you know, it's the internet and sometimes the audio, you know, people are like, it's CBD, CBT. And, and honestly, people, may, people mistake up uh, like, you know, more egregious, unrelated things than that so for example Corona the the alcohol the beer <laughs> <laughs> has taken an 11 market hit ever since the coronavirus has been getting play in the media uh they're unrelated and I'm just saying if people can make that link people are gonna make the link between CBT and CBD and they again I cannot stress this enough unrelated. One is the primary management tool for insomnia. The other one has no effect on insomnia. Uh, despite, despite what the person shilling the CBD uh, discount code in bio may lead you to believe, uh, Baraki, have you ever had a insomnia? Uh, acute insomnia. Sure. Yeah. For short, for short periods of time during surrounding periods of, uh, you know, profound life stressors. Absolutely. And so, yeah. And I, I think it, Nate and and Nate I think you would agree with this most adults if not um, nearly all adults will go through will have some insomnia you know in a given year or p- whatever period of time you want to you know stretch this out to will experience this the point at which you kind of like make this leap to needing like medical management and I don't mean necessarily medication but actually like CBT or actually just see your doctor to to kind of evaluate this and and get a handle on it is is when it's causing you profound you know problems in, in your life that are sustained, you know, not just one night or two nights or three nights or even a week of like, man, I'm having a tough time going to sleep, staying asleep. And I'm having some daytime fatigue. Like, you know, that's like, it's like back pain. Correct. (laughs) Correct. It's, it's very similar. It's very similar in a way. So do you have a cutoff, like a cut point where you're like, Hey, if you've been having some insomnia or what you think is insomnia for X amount of time, or like, that's when you should, you know, most likely see a doctor or uh, uh, do you think it's just more subjective than that?
2: If it's getting in the chronic insomnia realm, which would be like going on three months or greater, I I would highly recommend, um, if there are not other things going on in your life that require prioritizing, I would prioritize this. And, and the reason why is because there's some good evidence that would suggest that, um, over time, uh, I think I mentioned this, people will become conditioned to that sleep deprived state and, uh, become conditioned to um, being insomniacs. And the problem with that is um, those, those individuals tend to be less, can be less uh, sensitive to sleep drive and sleep pressure, um, which is one of the primary forms of sort of like in CBTI, where we're often using sleep pressure is a is a way to improve someone's um, sleep uh, and to treat their insomnia and if for several months and or years you've you know not had that addressed and you've become accustomed to it you're looking at what may be a little bit of a more of an uphill battle as compared to somebody who you know is experiencing insomnia over the last couple of weeks because they have a big test coming up or they have some other sort of external stressor that's that's affecting their sleep
1: Got it. That's good advice. Um, Okay. Now, second most common uh, thing that we run into with respect to sort of sleep disorders. It's got to be obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, And, you know, I I think I've told my story of how I got diagnosed with this a million times. So if you listen to any of our Mm -hmm. other podcasts where the word sleep apnea like appears in the keywords, you can listen to it there. I'm not going to bore you guys with that. Uh, But the funny thing is it's contagious because I gave it to Austin. So Austin's got it too. (laughs) It's the first cases of infectious obstructive sleep apnea. No, Uh, also not true. But um, yeah, so obstructive sleep apnea. Again, if you had to give people a sort of lay uh, uh, definition of this, how would you define it, uh, Dr. Gordon?
2: Yeah, so I talk about this a lot in my clinic, and I think... I agree, like the, the lay sort of description should basically be um, sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, particularly in a nutshell, is at night when you go to sleep, your muscles relax to a certain degree. Um, I think we could all sort of agree with that statement. Um, well, it turns out the, the muscles of your upper airway um, also relax, so your tongue and your neck um, can relax to a degree in which you either have a reduction of your breathing, or, um, an inability to maintain, uh, an open airway, um, effectively sort of choking in your sleep is how I describe it to patients. And, um, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, there are varying degrees of severity, uh, but the way that, the way that it negatively impacts your sleep is, is that, as you progress into sort of deeper stages of sleep, particularly when you get into a REM sleep, um, as we talked about, your your body tends to be more relaxed and or paralyzed. And uh, sleep apnea, or those number of uh, abnormal uh, uh, difficulty with breathing events occurs uh, more frequently. Um, So what that does in turn is, is it sort of, you know, as you start to um, not be able to breathe your brain, uh, and your lungs receive less air and therefore your brain receives less oxygen and you start to wake up. Um, so you're effectively, as you're getting into these deeper stages of sleep, your body then starts to choke itself and sort of pulls yourself out of those deeper stages so that you're either awake or you're in those lighter stages of sleep when you're less likely to have, um, sleep apnea occurring. Yeah. And that happens a certain number of times. Um, over the course of the evening or the course of your sleeping period.
1: Yeah. So it's like a, a respiratory effort related arousal effectively. Like you just, you can't keep the oxygen at the level it needs to be when your muscles are relaxed. And then you, in order to like get that, the oxygen up, you got to wake up a little bit. So, and that's yep. keeps you out of those yep. deep stages of sleep. So when you're diagnosing this, um, in general, there's like two main types of tests. You can go to a sleep lab and they, you know, hook you up to a bunch of different. Sensors and you know oxygen monitors and such, et cetera. or you could do it at home. Um, it's a typical home sleep study. Do you have a preference? Is there like a you know what are they, are they actually monitoring? and then um, do you do you recommend one over the other uh, in any particular situation?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, um, so I don't know that I would recommend one versus the other, uh, but to, we can get into sort of the specifics. So with an in-lab sleep study, effectively what you're getting is you're getting, um, monitoring oxygen levels with a pulse ox, you're getting, um, monitoring of your heart with a, like a simple, like one lead or two lead EKG, you're getting, um, uh, airflow and, or, um, uh, in, in two forms of different measurements, um, you're getting brainwave activity so we can monitor when the person's asleep and then when the person's starting to wake up or has like a respiratory type of event um, that we, you know, discuss that then causes them to wake up. Um, uh, we have some belts that will sit over your chest and your abdomen to tell us if, you're, if there was an effort during that uh, those res- respiratory events, and then we have some extra leads um, to monitor things like arms and leg movement. Um, so that's a you know that's a lot of of information that the the sleep uh, an in lab sleep study is getting. And what's helpful for that is you're getting a lot more information. You know, is the person waking up uh, because they're having a a reduction in their breathing? That's not accompanied by a reduction in their oxygen level. Like that's a thing. You know. Um, and that, and that can cause sleep disruption. So, so you get more information with the in lab, the at home study, which may be a little bit more, um, uh, easy to, for the patient, at least to sleep involves fewer leads. It's basically sort of generally speaking, it's most of the things that we talked about with the exception of the eye and brain, um, monitoring that we talked about. So all the oxygen, um, the breathing functions that we talked about, um, Position is there. And then, you know, because we can't tell when the person's asleep or not, we, we rely on the person telling us, okay, I went to bed at this time and fell asleep at this time and I woke up at this time. Um, I think for the most part, if you're, if you're concerned that you have sleep apnea, which I, th- I think we'll probably talk about screening um, in a bit, um, I think a home sleep test is a, is a fine opening uh, initial type of test. Um, but the, the convention should be understood that because it's um, going to pick up fewer individuals, since we're missing some of those those other uh, inputs, um, that if you have a negative sleep study and you still suspect that you may have sleep apnea, then my recommendation would be is you either repeat that um, home sleep test or you uh, the ideal alternative would be is you get a an in-lab sleep test uh, to follow.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you're trying to figure out or, or or, determine who would be eligible for this, uh, if they weren't didn't come see you in the office where you didn't get to like do an exam and look at them and ask them a bunch of questions, uh, what sort of risk factors are you like think that uh, are predictive here? You know, so people at home who may not necessarily had been thinking that maybe I have sleep apnea, even though it's super common, we're talking like almost a billion people worldwide have sleep apnea, okay? So what sort of like, Uh, traits, characteristics, or other risk factors, would you um, sort of put together sort of like this screening tool um, that you might use? And where, where would people go for that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So you guys have mentioned um, quite a few times during your uh, seminars and prior um, uh, material, the stop bang screening questionnaire, and that's, that's a good starting point. So, you know, like, the, we'll run through the mnemonic, but essentially are, you know, if you're a snorer, if you snore loudly, if your bed partner, you know, hates sleeping next to you or has to sleep in another room because you snore really loudly, that's a positive, you know, S there. If you're tired during the day or you feel fatigued or you're sleepy or you're falling asleep at inappropriate times, that's, that's the T and that that might be, you know, that's a positive indicator there. Um, the O is for if you've, if you've been observed, uh, whether you're stopping breathing or not, and that would be, um, you know, you're, you'd have to have a bed partner to tell you that. Um, but if you've woken up, you know, gasping or choking, it's possible that, you know, that might have, that might be representative of, uh, an apneic event. Um, the P and stop is, uh, pressure. So if you're someone who has high blood pressure, we, we have, um, pretty decent data su- to suggest that um, the surge of uh, fight or flight hormones that occur when someone's choking uh, during a, during sleep apnea is associated with an increase in um, uh, systolic uh, blood pressure. And as a result of that, if you have high blood pressure, that might be a risk factor and you may have um, sleep apnea. Um, I'll, I'll pause for a second. And I'll say that Those individuals who test positive, uh, like two out of those four criteria right there are looking at higher risk of sleep apnea anyway. And we haven't even talked about the second half of the screening questionnaire, um, but that's a validated, just that itself is validated for screening for sleep apnea.
1: Yeah. I think if you have two, Um, if you answer yes to two of those questions or whatever, you're, it's like a two, twofold increase in risk of sleep mm -hmm. apnea. And then if you up to like four, so you've answered, you know, most of those questions. Oh yeah, that's me. It's three and a half fold, or threefold. It's like it just keeps going. It's like so. Again, this is very common, just as a, a baseline. And then if you start answering yes to these questions, uh, probably on that road to like maybe maybe needing to get tested.
2: Yeah, and then and then to finish it out. So like it, you know before the uh, you know we mentioned the bang stop bang piece. So you know if your body mass index is greater than thirty five, which a lot of our listeners who train, you know, that may, they may fall into that category. You know, this doesn't take into account like waist circumference or stuff like that, but that's certainly, a, you know, something to consider if your age is greater than 50. So we just know that older individuals, um, their upper airways are comprised more of fat, fat, fatty tissues, as opposed to muscle tissues. And as a result of that, they're at higher risk of, uh, sleep apnea. So age greater than 50, is the a um for the n it's is do you have a large neck circumference so for males that'd be greater than 17 inches uh, and for females that'd be greater than 16 inches and then if you're the last uh, g is for gender for male so uh you know until post until a woman's postmenopausal, um, a man is always going to have a higher risk of um, sleep apnea um, at any given age Um, so that's, that's the stop bang questionnaire in a nutshell. And you can just Google that, um, and take it yourself. And if, if you pop positive or if you're elevated, I would talk to your doctor about it.
1: Yeah. It's worth worth getting screened for particularly. And again, if you, if you are never fatigued during the day, like it just doesn't happen to you outside of just, you know, once in a blue moon, then why are you listening to this podcast? It's not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, like, yeah, if somebody came into my office and said, yeah, look, I'm you know, I got two risk factors for sleep apnea. I'm wondering if I have it, uh, you know, and then the first question I would ask them, are, you know, are you tired during the day? And then I'd characterize, you know, how often and what do they mean by that and everything else? And I said, no, never. I'm like, I don't know that I need, that we need to like screen you for this, um, you know, unless there was some other reason. They had uh, high blood pressure or, you know, another condition that I thought would be uh, or obesity or something else something else that was like predisposing me to, to work that up. But anyway, in any event, yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. Um, Baraki, you're, you're on the CPAP now. Uh,
3: yes, I am. Uh, technically, I think it's an auto, uh, PAP machine, but yes, we can, we'll, we'll get to those machines. I've been on it for, I don't know, maybe a little over a year now. And you you yeah. kind of get used to it up front, but yeah, works fine.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're like we're we're like big CPAP shills here. We're just you know (laughs) shilling shilling for those appliances. All right, so so you have somebody that you've diagnosed uh, with sleep apnea after one of either the home sleep study or the sleep lab. Um, Where do you kind of start with management? Because we just jumped right into you know the oral appliance, the sleep the CPAP, uh, which is continuous positive airway pressure. There's a couple different flavors of that. Do you start with anything before that? Or you just, you jump right to that uh, in most cases?
2: So it depends, depends on a couple of things, depends on the patient's symptoms. Um, So like you said, if I, I, you know, I, I, see a lot of people who test positive for sleep apnea, but aren't overly symptomatic during the day, I might, you know, try providing them with some education and maybe asking them if they're overweight to, uh, you know, consider assessing that as a, as a feasible lifestyle intervention, Um, maybe avoiding things that could potentially worsen sleep apnea. So things like alcohol, um, uh, can cause worsening sleep apnea due to, um, the upper airway tone sort of being affected by that. Um, and then, you know, if, if I have someone who, if I have someone who has mild sleep apnea, I'm going to offer them the opportunity to try, um, positive airway pressure, uh, CPAP uh, or uh, another thing called an oral appliance, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, if they're symptomatic. If the person's sleepy, then, you know, the, they're, the worst thing that could happen is, is that I say, yeah, it's mild sleep apnea, you're good, just, you know, try try getting a little bit more sleep, and then, you know, the person continues having a terrible life, or, you know, or worse, they fall asleep, like, an inter- at an inappropriate time. So I'm definitely always open to giving folks a trial um, uh you can go either way when it comes to mild to moderate sleep apnea. So mild being somewhere on the realm of uh, five uh, abnormal breathing events per hour to about 15. Um, and then 15 to 30 is the moderate range. And there's evidence to support that if somebody um, has a lot of those episodes occurring when they're on their back um, and they're still only in the moderate um, category that they may benefit from a, um, uh, a device called a mandibular advancement device or an oral appliance. You know, effectively what that does is that sort of just pulls the jaw forward ever so slightly to pull those, you know, uh, neck tissues anteriorly and, and, and therefore reducing the incidence of incidence uh, of abnormal breathing events. Contra, uh, contrast that with positive airway pressure as its name implies, a constant pressure or in Austin's case, uh, a varying pressure, depending on sort of what the machine is interpreting. Um, uh, But effectively, you have a constant pressure of airflow that's keeping the airway propped open. So sort of like a pneumatic splint is how we would describe it, and therefore reducing those instances of the airway collapsing and sort of the person not breathing at all, preventing apneas or preventing the person even from snoring, um, which happens uh, when the airway narrows to a certain degree. So either of those options are solid options.
1: Now, what about the person who's like, "Hey, look, Nate, I don't snore. No one's told me that I snore. Um, yeah, I'm tired sometimes, but not not frequently. I meet some of these criteria, uh, I guess. But uh, you know, honestly, when I when I drink, anytime I have a you know, I go out with my buddies and I have you know a few drinks, man, the next day I'm just wrecked. And I think that I, I'm just hung over, you know, cause I feel so bad in the morning, but I really don't drink that much. Um, is there anything related to sleep apnea there?
2: Yeah. So that person might be sort of teetering on the realm of uh, borderline sleep apnea, or they may very well have mild sleep apnea and it's just not really all that apparent until they number one, um, have more obstructive events relating to their alcohol intake, or number two, they get lower quality sleep as a result of their alcohol intake, therefore sort of making them feel the effects of their, you know, sleep apnea a little bit more the next day. So either way, i i probably, if a person presented with those complaints, I probably would refer them still to to be assessed for sleep apnea.
1: Yeah. And, and I think the way I understand it with the alcohol, uh, one, uh, people, it al- alters the sleep architecture Two, it. Uh, c- people tend to sleep in, abnormal postures compared to where they normally sleep. So for example, um, I never used to sleep on my back ever because I would s- just be apneic. <laughs> and so the way I dealt with that <laughs> was to never sleep on my back. But when I would drink uh, like in college and, and in med school, cause I don't do that anymore since I'm a responsible adult, um, I would just sleep on my back and it would be, you know, terrible. Uh, and so when I actually did my sleep study, I had to sleep on my back and, uh, yeah, that was, I think they found out very early on in that sleep study that I was, I had some, some pretty substantial apnea. So between the abnormal postures, and then also can be an additional like muscle relaxant where the strap muscles of the neck, maybe even a little bit less tone than they normally have. Cause you're, uh, wasted. Um, yeah, can't contribute any, any other common medications that you see do similar sort of things.
2: Um, opioids are a big one, uh, What's interesting about opioids, though, is that they, instead of them sort of contributing to strictly obstructive apneas, they can also contribute to central apneas. So that's why, you know, we have with the, within the, the realm of this, this big opioid epidemic, people across the country are, are dying from opioid overdoses. They're, you know, the, the main reason why they're, they're dying is because their brain is no longer uh, being told that it should, it should breathe. And those are called central apneas. Uh, that's something that we commonly um, see uh, here in Colorado Springs. you know, I'm not not people dying, but I see a lot of central apneas because of altitude. So um, the, uh, the that's definitely a contributor um, other medicines that can cause um, relaxation uh, to uh, in excess, uh, if, especially if they're used in excess, um, potentially uh, things like benzodiazepines uh, and or other muscle relaxants, but the big one um, is thought to be from opioids.
1: Nice. Good. All right. Look, I've got a rapid fire question for you guys all pertaining to sleep. Nate, you've been awesome on this so far, and now I'm going to try to trip you up, but you don't have to trip up on your own. We're going to try to include Dr. Baraki in this (laughs) rapid fire question because I know that he loves this so much, but and, and uh, this time around, this, these are medically related things, okay? So we'll start off here. Nate, commonly asked question we get all the time, what about catch-up sleep? So I don't sleep during the week that much, but on the weekends I crash, I catch up. That's fine, right?
2: Mm, no, it's not uh, because what that, typically, what that typically will contribute is uh, you having difficulty with going to sleep once you've caught up. If you're more sleep-satiated on the back end, you have less sleep drive and therefore are less effective at going to sleep later. So my recommendation is if you can, if you can avoid it and try to maintain a regular sleep schedule, that's more ideal.
1: Uh, Austin, during the weeks that you work in the hospital, when you're on and you're potentially getting less sleep, what do you do? Like how do, how do you even function? Uh, well, so I would point out that I'm not in residency
3: anymore. And so my, (laughs) I actually tend to have relatively little issues with respect to to sleep. I don't do night call anymore, anything like that. So my sleep schedule overall tends to stay pretty consistent. I'd say that when I was in residency, then it was a similar deal. I tend to, I tried to be as regular as I could with my sleep, but of course, sometimes it was out of my control. So if I had, you know, the, the long, you know, 28 hour ICU calls or something that would be erratic. Um, there's really nothing that I could do about it other than recognize that it was a temporary deal when I was on that rotation, when I'd have other rotations where I have no choice but to train later in the evening. Like Nate was saying, I would have to be going up to, you know, an RPE nine set on the squad or the deadlift at like, you know. 9:45 at night and trying to be in bed by like 10 15 or something. I just did what I had to do because I didn't want to not train, uh, at that time. So, um, I did what I could recognizing that it was temporary. And then as soon as that period passed, then I tried to normalize things as much as possible. So,
1: yeah, that's actually true. Cause, uh, I knew that if I texted Austin after like 8 PM, On the Pacific Standard Time, which would be 10 p.m. where he was at, it's a high likelihood he was asleep. This is even during residency, unless I knew he was on nights. And so now, even though he's not in residence anymore, I send him text messages that say, you up
0: at like (laughs) 7 or 8 (laughs) p.m. just to see.
1: Yes. All right. Uh, Nate, what about melatonin? My naturopath told me that as long as if I start (laughs) taking melatonin, that's going to cure my insomnia.
2: Yeah. So that's going to be a, a no for me, dog, I think in general.
1: Um,
2: in general, uh, I mean, it's not a bad thing to try, uh, but in general, the evidence doesn't support uh, a significant improvement in either sleep latency, so how long it takes you to fall asleep and or sleep uh, how long you're asleep for. Um, in times when it is uh, semi-helpful might be uh, when you're having circadian issues. So if you're trying to move someone's uh, circadian rhythm, either you know forward or backward, that might be helpful. And there have been some studies that have suggested that it's helpful with jet lag, but uh, uh, even that is a little bit questionable. So in general, I'd say no.
1: Got it. Uh, Baraki, so I am looking to get a new watch and I would love it if I could get one of those. Uh, health-related watches that told me how much I slept and how much deep sleep I got. Is that a good idea or a bad idea?
3: Uh, Yeah, I tend to recommend against those, uh, Dr. Gordon. Feel free to chime in here as well. But I wrote a piece about this on our website uh, about two years ago called Placebo Sleep in 2018, Um, and this had to do with kind of a potential nocebo effect of uh, using these kind of like sleep tracking devices, uh, because you may be sleeping reasonably well, uh, and then Say you have kind of a normal, you know, we all experience some degree of tiredness at some point, and then suddenly you start looking at this to track it, and your watch, which is of questionable validity a lot of the times, may tell you that you had a whole bunch of, you know, poor quality, poor quality sleep, for example. Um, or you may feel fine, and you look at your watch, and it tells you you had poor quality sleep, and that may kind of nocebo you from that standpoint as well. Uh, so I think that, you know, we should be primarily focused on, uh, not trying to like biohack and optimize every aspect of our lives and like measure all these things that don't necessarily need to be measured. If you're having concerning symptoms, things that are distressing to you, affecting your quality of life, then get them evaluated kind of through validated proper means. And if not, then there's no need to go looking for problems that may not exist.
2: Yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that statement. I think in general, um, Having an idea as to where your sleep is, is not a bad idea, but it's, you know, exactly as Austin pointed out, it could become problematic and anxiety provoking. Um, just as similarly as like, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at the clock and you see that you have like, you know, three hours until your alarm's supposed to go off and you start freaking out about that, that's, that is a, you know, that is a negatively impacting sort of uh, behavior. Um, so I'd say it's okay to check in with how much sleep you're getting in general, um, uh, once in a while, but it's not something that I would track exclusively unless you're doing it in conjunction with something like CBTI or a sleep physician's helping you
1: with that. Sure. And I would just make the further recommendation that if you're going to like use objective metrics, because you can do like a you can use us to a sleep diary for example that's not unheard of to recommend like a, to get a of for like kind of better characterization of insomnia for example so like what time did you go to bed what time did you wake up how long do you think it took you to go to sleep how many times did you wake up like all sorts of stuff that you're just like logging in a legitimately a diary right um, and then you know you get to rate like how, are you tired in the morning or do you feel well rested on a scale so there's there's like that stuff exists uh, but if you're using like a wear, like wearable tech that's trying to tell you how many hours you spent in various stages of sleep, uh, those are not well validated. And like could, you know, in addition to giving you data you might not even need, the data might not even be accurate or precise, which questions the whole thing. Like, why are you doing this? If you're getting a sleep study done, <laughs> well, you can use that data, you know, because it's uh, uh, it is accurate and precise. But the actual wearable tech can't really comment on the accuracy or precision of that at the present time so moving on
2: yeah
1: nate this is uh these are rapid fire so you this is like a rorschach test but for medicine okay. all right so we're talking about appliances here not like plug in like appliances but like appliances that people use to sleep and so you get to say yes or no and then maybe like a sentence but it's like a twitter response got to be short
2: okay got it
1: breathe right strips no <laughs> okay okay <laughs> Eye mask.
2: I don't know what that is.
1: Like you got the mask you wear oh, over yeah. your eyes. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Uh, those are reasonable. Yes.
1: Great. Earplugs. Uh, yes. White noise, like a fan. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh,
2: in, in certain certain individuals, it's individual, but yes.
1: How about a TV? I use a TV to go to sleep.
2: <sighs> uh, preferably no. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: These are just common questions. All right. And last one, I want both of you guys to respond to this. How, Nate, you can start. Th- how important do you think it is for the circadian rhythm for people to get outside and expose themselves to the sun on a daily basis?
2: Oh, man. It's so, so, so important. It's, I mean, if there's one thing that listeners can take away pertaining to the circadian rhythm, because I know that was a little bit uh, like over their heads, it's that – light is the most sensitive driver of that. So I would highly recommend that during the day you get lots of light exposure and at night you try to limit that light exposure.
1: So just, you know, what if what if somebody's sleeping uh, or has to do like a night shift? What would you recommend there?
2: Yeah, so as they're coming off of their night shift, try to limit the amount of light exposure that you're getting uh, in the morning so that you can still um, sort of, convince your body to go to sleep Uh, but then as soon as you wake up ideally you're exposing yourself to bright light um, so that you're again trying to entrain that that uh, that pattern or that rhythm um, so that your body knows hey it's time for me to be awake now.
1: Excellent. Baraki anything on sun exposure?
3: Yeah I don't have anything to add to that uh, myself there's one other comment I was going to make separate to this but I wanted to make sure you get through your Q&A's first.
1: Sure I'm good go ahead.
3: Oh, um, it was uh, on the topic of sleep apnea. The one thing I wanted to add, uh, just because it's very common concern in our uh, population is is people who are concerned about low testosterone or hypogonadism and the association there with uh, obstructive sleep apnea, as well as a number of the risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea with low testosterone. And I've seen lots of patients, guys who got their tests done and they want to get started on treatment or somebody's already started them on testosterone replacement therapy Without an appropriate evaluation for sleep apnea, and uh, you know, having severe untreated sleep apnea is actually a contraindication or what we, you know, a reason to not start TRT in somebody because it can exacerbate the sleep apnea further. And additionally, treating the sleep apnea can actually improve the hypogonadism, can improve their testosterone levels, as well as treating the other risk factors, including overweight, obesity, things like that. So that's a big one that I think is underrecognized that I look for a lot in these people who you know, oftentimes may be interested in pursuing TRT without realizing that there are other things that need to be either ruled out and or treated that may actually obviate the need for them to get that treated at all.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I think at, at a minimum for those patients who are about to get started on TRT, um, a, question, a screening questionnaire should be completed. And if it's not, that's, you know, you're wrong.
1: Perfect. Guys, we did it. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Nate, so much for joining us. Listeners at home, we have a bunch of resources in the description below, so go check those out if you want to learn more about this. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always with Dr. Austin Baraki and our special guest, Dr. Nate Gordon. If you guys are listening on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and review really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll catch you on the next episode. See you.
0: Say goodbye